Okay, looks like we've uh, hit the 11, uh, 11 o'clock mark here. So if you guys are ready, we can delve in to Colossians. So we begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, we are in the book of Colossians. Last week, um, I gave kind of a, a brief introduction on what was going on, uh, where this was taking place, where Paul was, and um, just so, um, if, just a quick recap here, recall that uh, Ephaphras was sent to Colossae under Paul's supervision to take the gospel on Paul's behalf uh, to a place where the apostle himself, for some reason or another, couldn't be there. He couldn't physically be there. Uh, so Ephaphras, uh, who we think was uh, had studied under Paul, um, started the church there in Colossa. And uh, at a certain point in time, it appears that some type of false uh, teaching had crept into the church there at Colossa. And because of that, when that came up, uh, since Paul could not come there, because we know he was at prison there in the time, Ephaphras uh, then travels to Rome to meet with Paul to talk with him about what's going on. Paul then, the apostle, writes this letter to the Colossians to uh, deal with this uh, false teaching that was taking place. And as I briefly mentioned last time, although there's not a real consensus on what it was, uh, most uh, biblical scholars and the commentaries do think it was some form of Gnosticism, although Gnosticism had different uh, throughout the ages, kind of different beliefs. The real tenet that most Gnostics believe was that they did deny the incarnation of Christ. So I think we see this in, in opposing this, Paul, in this letter. He's, again, like I said, the theme. He's stressing the correct teaching concerning really the person um, and the work of Christ. And Christ is truly incarnate. Son of God and God Himself. And we see this over and over um, within the book, and we'll get into some of that uh, today. So, that being said, why don't we start? Now, we did some of the, remember, I have the, the handout. We, we did the, um, if anyone needs a handout, they're up here. But we started, uh, we did the, we went through the salutation, and now we've uh, entered the overture. And, apart, and we covered some of the Thanksgiving um, prayer that Paul gives here, but we're going to kind of go back over some of it and uh, see if we can get that finished today and then move on to the next section, which is the source of knowledge, reason for intersection. So the Thanksgiving report, that's Colossians 1, beginning with verse 3 uh, through 8. And even though we covered uh, three and four last time, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole section and then we'll start uh, with verse five. 
So the Thanksgiving report. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and is made known to us your love in the Spirit. So that's the Thanksgiving report here. And verse, let's look at verse 5 here. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth and the gospel which has come to you. Now here, Paul is commenting on the greatness of the gospel. That humanity has been saved from sin and death by the work of Christ alone. And that this benefit is given solely by his grace apart from any works many human works. The Colossians and, and the, therefore we are to remember that the gospel is um, its range is worldwide. The gospel is bearing its fruit and growing in all the world even as the Colossians themselves had witnessed this since the day when they first heard it. When, what they witnessed in Colossae is happening now in all the world. Um, Paul then repeatedly, as I read it here, Paul repeatedly in Colossians does make reference to the word of Christ's gospel. He stresses its truth because it is Christ's gospel, specifically that we are declared not guilty for our sins and thus saved. That defines what the reality is for us. The word of truth is Paul says here in verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth and this gospel. And this is really not the claims of the secret knowledge of the false teachers that were there, the Gnostics. But Paul gives readers all blessings of faith and hope and the power to bring forth the fruit of love for others because their love in Christ is truly an expression of God's love working in them. Verse 6 here. So we hear the word of truth, the gospel, then which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now here we hear this um, bearing fruit. And It appears that the bearing fruit which Paul is talking about, which is the result of hearing the gospel, is what Paul earlier referred to, and we talked about this last time. It was, remember, the faith, the love, and the hope that we were mentioned in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. And recall that the faith, hope, and love, these are actually the three pillars of the Christian life and in our teaching. The first one is faith, which is 
as we discussed last time, faith is really our Lord's doctrine. Love, love is the life of the Christian, and hope is the endurance in the midst of persecution. So that's what Paul is referencing when he's bearing fruit. It's this fruit which is faith, love, and hope. And then Paul continues to say that in this whole world that this is bearing fruit and growing. And growing here is, re- is a reference to actually the fur- further development of these three pillars, the faith, love, and hope. Um, some commentators point out this note that Paul's not he- actually referring here to the growing and the increase of numbers of the church. No, that's not what Paul's focus is. But Paul is talking about the growing of these concepts of faith, love, and hope. Paul continues, As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace in God and truth. Now grace, what grace here, what is Paul speaking of? The grace of God in truth. Grace, of course, as we know, we're taught in other places in scriptures and in the Lutheran confession, is God's undeserved, unmerited love, unmerited favor towards guilty sinners, which pardons and blesses them in Christ Jesus and grants them hope. So that's what grace is. And, you, and he, they were taught that, heard it, and understood the grace of God and truth. And again, that wasn't coming from Paul, but that's a reference back to Epaphras, who was there and who was actually pe- preaching the gospel. So Paul certainly has no uh, issues with what Epaphras was doing. The gospel was being preached, but then we know that this other kind of false teaching had crept into the church. So, according to verse 6 here, we can ask ourselves then, what is the result of hearing this word of truth? What Paul's saying here, the result of hearing the word of truth is, is the word of truth has produced faith in the lives of the Colossians, as well as in the lives of the followers of Jesus all over the world. That fruit is faith in Jesus, which is salvation, as well as a Christ-like life, which blesses one's neighbor. So it's two. It's the faith, and then it's what we do in our sanctified life, um, which is how we look and act towards our neighbor. I will have a little bit more to talk about that here in a minute. So the two aspects of the Christian life here. It's your justification at the beginning, which is your place before God, and then your sanctified life, which how you, you live out your life as a Christian, which really boils down to blessing and serving the neighbor. Okay. So we'll move on to verse 7. Just as you learned it from Ephaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, just as you learned it from Ephaphras, our beloved servant. Um, you learned here, when, they, when Paul writes, you learned, 
um, refers to the readers, the Colossians, their initial coming to faith. But certainly this verse designates Ephaphras as the founding missionary at the church at Colossa. So Ephaphras, who was our beloved, Paul's beloved, and also a fellow servant. Now the Greek here for servant actually is doulos, which is slave. It can be, it can be tran- translated either as servant or slave. But Ephaphras is actually designated by Paul himself as a fellow slave, um, as Paul is, and a servant or a minister of Christ. Now, this term doulos, or slave in the New Testament, is, is really one who was wholly owned by a master, to whom the slave owed undivided allegiance and obedience. Servants represent the one to whom they belong. Therefore, servants of Christ must faithfully transmit the message entrusted to them without adding their own opinions. And that's what Paul is referencing here when he's uh, talking about Ephesus also being a slave. And it's this concept, it's the doulos. Then Paul writes... <clears throat> He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Um, The Greek can be translated on our behalf. He's a faithful minister of Christ on either your behalf or on our behalf. This here would indicate that the ministry of Ephaphras was really an extension of Paul's own ministry. Especially when he says that Ephaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who was ministering on our behalf, meaning on Paul's behalf, and the brothers um, associated with Paul. So Ephaphras was actually um, connected with, with Paul. Uh, Ephaphras, of course, was sent to Colossa under Paul's supervision to take the gospel to the Colossians because, as we know, Paul could not physically be there. But this then would ex- explain the, this kind of apostolic and pastoral concern that Paul has and shows from this congregation, even though he's never visited. Um, Paul feels really compelled to help Ephesus here and to address what's going on and to minister to these people. So in verse 8 then, Ephaphras, he's a faithful minister of Christ on, your be- on our behalf, it can read, and in aid here, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now Ephaphras then has brought the Apostle Paul word of the, the love that was actually still being displayed by the Colossians. And also, though, in this, we may can assume that Ephaphras also uh, told Paul, in addition to the love that was going on, going on it, it, it filled Paul in on what was going on with respect to this small group of false teachers within the church. Um, the phrase here, your love in the Spirit, the phrase in the Spirit does refer to the Holy Spirit as the source of, of the love displayed by the Christians. So it was the Holy Spirit that was at work 
and the source of this love. And as the study note says um, here in our um, study Bibles, um, Lutheran study Bible, on, it says, Love and the Spirit under note 8. Love, as well as faith, is the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Okay. And again, this is speaking to those who have already, already been justified and already saved. This is the sanctified life where love does come about, but it's, it's actually a work of the Holy Spirit. As the work has given us faith, uh, that justifying us then in our sanctified life, the love that we have is still the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and is um, a result of our faith, which is also given to us. All righty. Any questions up to this point? Chris? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Vicar, um, do you know or have any idea how big this congregation might have been, the Colossians, that this letter was being t- uh, addressed to? Yeah, that's a, a good, and I, I thought about that too, and I did a lot of research, and there's just really no, no one has any indication how, how, how big it was. I, I would have to assume it was fairly big, getting big, because if, you know, this preaching was going on, and he had a congregation, and then some false teaching crept in, I'm, it had to be, a, I would think, a larger than just a simple small house church you know so yeah I don't think we know that but I wish we did but we don't yeah yeah uh, Vicar uh, can we go back to the definition or what what we're talking about a Gnostic uh, because we know from our Lutheran doctrines that Christ was fully human and fully divine at the same time can't separate the two. Um, so, an, so my question is, a Gnostic at that time, they understood that Christ was um, human, but they had trouble with his divinity? That That's exactly right, because really okay. the, the, the Gnostics, they... Uh, were nothing material or fleshly. That was what they were against, and that's really the, that's where Gnosticism comes from, is the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. And they were all about this knowledge of a, a spiritual world, more spiritual living, nothing earthly. So that's why um, any thought that, that the Savior could be in human flesh, they just could not comprehend. And I think that's what Paul is dealing here, yeah. But Gnostics were more spiritual about the spiritual knowledge and gaining just all about knowledge and against material and worldly things. So I think that was really the basis for wanting, denying that Christ was actually true God because he was a mere, mere human. Of course, uh, we believe that he was not mere human. He was human, but at the same time, he was also fully God, right? The two natures. So, But I think that does, that goes to the heart of this, why they, the Gnostics could not accept Jesus as true God himself, because of the materiality of himself. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. Gnostics were trying to get away from the humanity, from the human element of anything physical and reach this spiritual area. So, yeah, that's a great point. Thank you.
other questions there? Hmm. So just let me kind of sum up then this Thanksgiving and prayer, um, this Thanksgiving report. Um, Paul gives thanks to God uh, for the Colossian Christians. He does. In particular, Paul gives thanks for what the gospel had done within the Colossians in the midst of them, and that it is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit centering on the work of Jesus Christ. The word of truth of the gospel has given the Colossian Christians hope, hope that is certain of their internal life through the work of Christ. And we see that in Paul's prayers. The Colossians' faith and trust rest on this certain future and move them to a life of love, a love towards others, a love which arises from the work of the Holy Spirit. But what the, word, what the Word of God has accomplished among the Colossians is the same as what the Word um, of God accomplishes throughout the whole world back then and today. And this is why Paul initially is thanking God for the Colossians. Even though he knew that they had some problems going on, he is still right off the bat thankful for their faith and their love um, within the congregation, within the world. Okay, so the next, uh, that's kind of the Thanksgiving report. Now we kind of get to some more meat here of what Paul's addressing in this second section. It's in, in the overture. Um, um, it's been labeled by some, and I, I, I like what it is. It's the source of knowledge and reason for intercession. And this comes in uh, verses, covers actually verses 9 through 14. So, how about I, uh, why don't I go ahead and just read it so we can kind of hear this and then we'll kind of go back uh, through it uh, verse by verse. Again, the source of knowledge. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay. So having before Paul spoken of the Colossians' status in the Christian life, as we read in, in the Thanksgiving and Prayer, Paul now continues by noting the need, of course, for which he prays, for his readers to grow in faith and godly living. And as we will see, the growth that Paul will focus on in this this section are these. The concept of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. 
Now, these, this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding comes from the same sources as the Colossians' initial coming to the faith. And it is this, through the proclamation of what God has done in the person and work of Christ for their salvation. Okay, so that's what Paul is praying for them now. Uh, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And, and most commentators think that this is being done because of uh, this false teaching um, that is coming back. And Paul is wanting to focus their knowledge, wisdom, and understanding back on to the person and work of Christ, which is actually the sole source of the salvation. Okay, now let's take a look at these kind of individually here, these um, verses here. We'll start with 9. Paul says, from the day we heard, again, Timothy was with him in Rome, so I think it's he, he and Timothy. As I said before, Paul was imprisoned, but we're not sure exactly if he actually was in prison, but we think, or some of the commentators uh, think that Paul was actually on house arrest. That's why Timothy could be with him, and that's why Ephaphras could come and meet with him. So from the day that we heard, of course, um, that is when Ephaphras came and visited and told him what was going on. Paul, what does he say? We, are, we, we, we have not stopped praying and asking God. Okay, that's the first thing he does for this congregation. Here again, we encounter Paul's regular prayer. I mean, he prays right at the beginning of this letter and uh, is also then telling them even before the letter He's been praying and involved in regular prayer for this congregation. So this section reports then not only Paul's thanksgiving that we saw at the beginning, but now we're also looking at what Paul's petitions are actually to God for his readers, which are the church at Colossae. Now what are Paul's petitions? So we see all three of them in verse 9. <clears throat> the first, he prays for knowledge of his will, then, all, then wisdom and understanding. Now, it's interesting. Paul may be using these terms in response to the claims of the false teachers that are tr troubling the congregation and trying to kind of match them up of what they're falsely teaching. Not quite sure if that's true or not, but uh, uh, Paul does pray for these three things. So let's first look at knowledge here. When Paul asks uh, God for knowledge of his will, what does this mean? It's, it's knowledge of his will, which is actually got, Paul is praying for the knowledge that these folks have the knowledge of God's will. Knowledge. Uh, now, society defines knowledge simply as to denote the retention of information, right? However, when you look at the Greek form, it's gnosis, which actually is also the basis for the not name Gnostic or Gnosticism. But gnosis um, has its root actually in an Old Testament Hebrew concept of, which is of of know or to know, which really, when you look at that, uh, the, the Hebrew then, and it really connotates 
an intimate relationship with one another. Not just gaining a retention of information that you can spit back, but it's really more than that. Knowledge in this sense is an intimate relationship with one another. In the Old Testament then, the knowledge of God is the equivalent of faith. That's what faith is. It's our intimate relationship with the triune God. And that's what the knowledge is here. And that's what Paul's praying for. Hence, Paul uses knowledge, though, as given by God. And that's why he's praying to God. And Paul asks for the knowledge the Colossians need in order to see... uh, to see, he's asking for the people of Colossia to see who these false teachers, who they are, and that what they're preaching is actually a false doctrine. So that's why it's Paul's asking for the knowledge here, so that these people that aren't caught up in this false doctrine, that they can see the true will of God and to not buy into this false teaching. Uh, now Paul does pray that God would give the Colossians knowledge of what? Knowledge of God's will. Um, and this is, and we see in other, Paul, Paul has this theme in a lot of his other writings, and, and, and Paul, Paul sees this as, as the, the knowledge of God's will is, is actually what God has willed for salvation, okay? Not just a general will on anything when the sun comes or whatever, but Paul specifically, when he's praying for knowledge of God will, is actually asking uh, God to show what he has willed for this church and for ours for that matter, for in terms of human, the human salvation. Uh, we do know, as Paul's written before in Colossians and 1 Timothy, that God has in fact willed our salvation but his will is said to be the cause of it so it's God's will that we're saved right it's all God's doing it's God's will God's will is his desire and plan from eternity for us to be saved and Paul discusses this in in Ephesians So God's will, in this sense, is the aspect of salvation. Now then, Christ, of course, accomplished this will of God and thereby affected our salvation. Okay, so that's knowledge of his will, all with respect to salvation. But then Paul then throws in also another term here, wisdom. Wisdom. We have a lot of wisdom references in the Old Testament, and I've just brought up a few here of, you know, what what does this mean, this wisdom, and what is Paul relying on? Of course, because he was an expert in the Old Testament. So when Paul uses wisdom, I think he's referring to some places uh, uh, how wisdom has been used in the Old Testament. And of course, in Job, wisdom is a, to- a popular topic. So I, I found uh, Job 28, verses 20 and 23. And I'll, I'll read those for you here. So in terms of this wisdom, in Job, it, really, it's, its wisdom belongs to God. 
and it says, From when then, excuse me, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. So we know that wisdom, wisdom belongs to God. But then also, the Old Testament tells us that God actually created the world by wisdom. And this is in Psalm 104.24. In Psalm, it reads this, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then in Proverbs 3, 19 through 21, it states, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, that uh, the depths broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So God, wisdom belongs to God. The world was created by wisdom. And also, God has then imparted wisdom to his creation. We can go to uh, Job uh, 28.20. I want to read this because it's good stuff here. So Job 28, 20, and then I'm going to skip to 23 through 27. Job 28, 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is this place of understanding? Verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and appropriated the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So God does also then impart wisdom wisdom to his creation. Wisdom then characterizes the pristine goodness of God's original creation. And the possession of the divine wisdom means salvation. So this is what Paul is praying for. But then, the lack of wisdom that we experience reflects our sinful condition. Lacking a right relationship with God. This lack of wisdom is evident because we are out of harmony with the way God created things to be. And of course we know that from the law. Therefore, wisdom is to be revealed by God if humanity is to gain the knowledge of salvation. The creative and revelatory function of wisdoms become incarnate in Jesus Christ, who is God in his wisdom made flesh. And see, this is, this is why Paul talks about wisdom and then is addressing this with this apparent Gnostic sect. Now let's look here. I want to talk about this. Just read through this about the creative and revelatory function of wisdom become incarnate in Jesus Christ, who is God and his wisdom made flesh. Let's turn to John. John 1.
John 1, 1 through 3. And then we'll look at 14 and 18. So again, the creative and revelatory function of wisdom become incarnate in Jesus Christ. And we see this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was, that was made. And then 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made known to him. So Christ, the creative and revelatory functions of wisdom become incarnate in Christ Jesus, who is God in his wisdom made flesh. Then under this wisdom also, Christ restores wisdom to the fallen creation by his cross. And how is that done? His death provides redemption of sin. Thus the divine wisdom of Christ is equivalent to forgiveness and righteousness. So this is what Paul is talking about when he speaks wisdom. Everything from belonging to God, given God using it to create the world, uh, given to to man, and then ultimately rest- through Christ, revealed through Christ, and then restored wisdom, which is the salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so we discussed the three things Paul's saying for. We've discussed two of the three. We discussed knowledge. Wisdom. Now, Paul also throws in understanding. Um, not a lot, much on this. Understanding or maybe insight. Uh, maybe a, some of the commentators say maybe a spiritual understanding. This spiritual, spiritual understanding designates wisdom as then a gift from the Holy Spirit. Um, gift language here. So, Paul prays then that the Colossians will have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And this, is, this really boils down to faith in God's forgiveness in Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit. So this is what Paul is praying for. Faith for God's forgiveness in Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit. Questions on that up to this point here? Uh, I was just going to mention this wisdom uh, shines light on uh, Proverbs 8, which is about wisdom. Yeah, read that if you don't mind. Well, Proverbs 8 is, that's the whole chapter. Okay, okay. uh, Any particulars about that or just the whole thing? Well, the whole thing, because it talks about wisdom, but I've learned elsewhere when we studied that. This, I think I'm going from memory, though, that, that that's really referring to Christ. And when you said there you go. God himself delivered wisdom back to his creation through the cross, then that connects it to Christ. And so it just came full circle for me. So I just, uh, so Proverbs 8, if you read that, every, every time the word wisdom is mentioned, it's, it's connecting Christ to that. So... Um, Anyway, I just great. Want. No, great point. And actually, I'll go back and check that out too. That's good. 
That's uh, good. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it's it it is Christ, right? Christ's death and resurrection is the true wisdom, and it's the wisdom of salvation, is what Paul really is focusing on, and that is through Christ. And again, apparently at the time that the this these Gnostics, I think that this was a major issue for them, and Paul, of course, is directly dealing with it here. Um, in this. Okay. Verse 10. So he prays for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Now verse 10 is this. And then, but if he prays for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, which is this salvation in Christ. And then, once we have that, what do we do? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. I'm going to stop there for a minute. See, so here Paul is now addressing not, of course, this is not in your justified life. He's not saying that in order to be saved, salvation salvation's come, comes as your walk in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord. But what Paul is addressing here then is once these People were saved, and we were saved, right? Not by works. That then there is a sanctified life um, that we live. So this term walk in Scripture refers to ethical conduct in Christian faith, one's way of life. Now in English, maybe as opposed to saying to walk, maybe think of us better to live or conduct yourselves. Now I am going to take a a brief kind of hiatus here. I am. Kind of address this, and uh, if you'll just bear with me for a minute, um, I, I, I wrote a paper for my uh, Lutheran Confessions too, and I want to talk about this just for a minute. This idea, because sometimes we think about the walk and stuff, and, and, and it can be used wrongly. Your walk, um, but let me let, let let me kind of delve in this to for a minute, and let's uh, bear with me here. I want to address this idea of works. Okay. Now, as we we all know, we've all been taught the article concerning justification by faith alone is the chief article of the entire Christian doctrine, right? And that's you know, I'm not this is this is there's no question of that. Um, all of our church fathers, it's justification is really the central of everything we think about. And we're justified again, not by what we do, but solely on the merits of Christ, what he did, and his death and resurrection for us. Concerning justification, we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God through our own merit, work, or satisfaction. That comes from the Augsburg Confession um, 4. Good works do not justify sinful man. This is foremost in, the Luther, in our Lord's doctrine. But I think this is important. However, good works are not altogether thrown away for the Christian. And again, this, this is why I'm addressing this, because Paul is saying here, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To the contrary, according to our Lord's doctrine, good works are a part of the Christian's sanctified life. The Augsburg Confession states this in Article 7. It is also taught that such faith should yield 
good fruit and good works, and that a person must do such good works as God has commanded for God's sake, but not place trust in them as if thereby to earn the grace before God. Now this article, Article 7 of Augsburg Confession, was written in response to the Roman Catholic's allegation that the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone had rendered works completely unnecessary in the Christian life. But to the contrary, works are understood as the fruits of justification, not the basis of it. Okay? In our, the small card articles, which are also in our Book of Concord, Luther states that, quote, If good works do not follow faith, then faith is false and not true. That's small called Article 13. So then this is the question that I had. So the question then is, what are good works that the Christian does as a fruit of justification in the Christian life? In Martin Luther's treatise on Christian liberty, the freedom of a Christian, Luther states, Therefore, a Christian should be guided in all his works by his thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he, he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and advantage of his neighbor. Luther partly bases this position on St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where St. Paul commands that one should labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he or she can give to the needy. And that's Ephesians 4.28. Based on St. Paul's words, Luther concludes, quote, This is what makes caring for the body a Christian work that through its health and comfort we may be able to work, to acquire, and to lay funds with which to aid those who are in need, that in this way the strong member may serve the weaker, and we may be sons of God, each caring for and working for the other, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And Luther says, this is truly a Christian life. Finally, Luther adds, I will therefore give myself as Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me, I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor, neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Although the Christian is thus free from all works in justification, he ought in this liberty to empty himself, take upon himself the form of a servant, to be made in the likeness of men, be found in human form, and to serve, help, and in every way deal with his neighbor as he sees that God through Christ has dealt and still deals with him. So it is clear from Luther's perspective that the good works that Christians do as a fruit of their faith is done towards the neighbor. These works form the basis of Christian life. This is the sanctified life that the Christian lives. Good works are not done to prove the facts of one's justification in a self-aggrandizing um, way, but done only out of love for the neighbor and on behalf of the neighbor's benefit. And as Luther says, and we do these good works for our neighbor, neighbor, this is truly the Christian life. So isn't that, that's what Paul then is talking about here. And when we, we see this in this when we talk about walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. 
Um, again, it's not in the justified life, but it's our sanctified life. And really this all boils down to our love and help of our neighbor. And I'll speak more of this on Sunday. This is kind of vocation language and, uh, and two kingdoms language here. So as Paul prays the... As Paul pray for these blessings here, the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and that, then that so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, uh, according to God's will, as Paul prays for these blessings according to God's will, it will result in the Colossians being empowered by God to lead lives characterized by good works, especially towards the neighbor. They will live in a manner worthy of the Lord because they will be equipped by their knowledge of the Lord to reflect Him in their thoughts, words, and deeds to the blessing of those around them, to the neighbor, and to the glory of Christ. Being filled with the petitions of Paul's request, they will be strengthened with the power of God to even have endurance and patience during times of trial and persecution and to have such blessings seasoned with joy and knowing their salvation is assured on account of what Jesus has done. All this results in a life of thanksgiving to God for every follower of Jesus. Paul, Paul's prayer for the Colossians is a wonderful reminder that we today can rightly lift up fellow believers before our Lord, asking that they too receive a full measure of knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding from the gospel. Good stuff, huh? Any questions at that point, at this point? Um, I, I was going to comment that um, the separation of justification and sanctification, you know, yeah. um, when, when we walk uh, as, as, a, as a Christian in faith, justified before God, uh, the verse that comes to my mind is this verse from uh, Galatians where Paul says, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And would you agree that it's Christ and the Holy Spirit he deposited in me who guides and directs, and it's God doing that, those good works. And it's not, I'm not taking, it's not me doing this. Some, I, I think there's a misunderstanding in the Christian that my walk, I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, when Christ says it's no, I no longer live, but I'm a new creation. And, you know, so right. if you could comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And, uh, See, we, we need to look at all this as gift language, and sometimes we don't do that. We, you know, we look at gift language within justification, right? That this is all gift. But then, then when you think about the, the sanctified life, to walk in the, way, in the manner worthy of the Lord, sometimes we, we lose focus of the gift still, that that still is a gift. Our good works are truly a gift from God and, and, and the Holy Spirit given to us as a result of the faith that he gave us to justify us. So that is right. And, and then when we don't see it that way, then you, you, you turn your good works back into kind of you have a measuring stick. Then you're kind of measuring what you're doing. And then you t- can tend to do that by measure others. And then it's just back all law again. And it's putting the focus on us and not where really all this is coming from. So that is right. We can't ever separate the gift language and both the justified 
how we're justified in our sanctified life, that our good works are gifts that come to us from the Holy Spirit through the faith that then that God also gave us. So it's all gift. It's all gift. And then because of the gift, our gifts then uh, are towards the neighbor. And that's how we, we, we live the Christian life. That's, that's what we do. Everything is out of love toward our neighbor. And that's a huge concept. It's just not, you know, my neighbor next door to me when they pull up coming home from work, <laughs> wave to them and say, I love you. That's not it. That's everything ordered in society. Everything is about the neighbor. And that's really the doctrine of vocation. Your neighbor is, you know, our neighbor is the whole world, and we all have different various vocations within this where we are given the gift um, to where we can show love to our neighbor and what we do. And in fact, that can be simply, I think, as I said this morning, the great, one of the greatest vocations of all was when the mother changed the, the baby's poopy diaper. I mean, stuff like that. That's real love and living out your Christian life towards your neighbor. It's awesome. Questions on that? But that's a great point, Barry. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Uh, we have a couple more minutes. I think maybe we can... Uh, yeah, let's try to get uh, a little bit more in here. We'll go on. So I talked about uh, the, this walk. Um, let's see. Okay, so in verse 12 here, let's see. So in 12, I'm going to skip a couple here. We're, I'm getting a little behind and I don't want to get too far behind. So we talked about, then in 11 it says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I wanted to focus on this then. What does this mean? That we share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Inheritance. It reflects this Old Testament concept of the promised land, this inheritance, being a place of safety where an abundant life was to unfold, foreshadow the resurrection and everlasting life with the Lord, so that's kind of in the Old Testament, the, the promised land. Now this, in, this inheritance, uh, since Jesus has come, um, now the inheritance is received by all who trust in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile alike. God has accomplished this by delivering us from sin, everlasting condemnation, and death, which is the domain of darkness, by His grace, and transferring us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Um, so as we further read this, we see inheritance of the saints in light. And then the next uh, verse says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Okay? So I know you guys have heard this for, before. This is this light and dark motif we hear. I mean, we hear it in John, the Gospel of John, and then actually First John, the letter. Um, light and darkness. And Paul is using it also here. And I think uh, some of the commentators think that he's using this because like and darkness, this dualism between like and dark darkness 
kind of figured heavily into Gnosticism, okay? But it was also seen in earlier sources. Philosophers spoke of true knowledge as providing light. Jewish teachers applied light and darkness imagery to a variety of specific occasions, all of which usually reflect a common appreciation of the goodness of light and a common disdain for the dangers of darkness. Here, uh, Paul describes God, or not here, but in other places, Paul describes God holy, God's holiness as dwelling in an unapproachable light, contrasting the Almighty with the devil and the host, who are the world rulers of this darkness. Paul compares conversion with God's creation of light, which the unbelieving do not see because the devil has blinded their minds. Those without saving faith are in darkness. Those within it are light in the world. And that's kind of what Paul is addressing here with this light and darkness imagery. Um, any questions on that? Or I think you guys have probably heard that, the light, so much, so much of in the, in the Gospel of John. John uses light and darkness all over the place. Well, that being said, I didn't make it through all of what I wanted to today, but that's okay. I know I did a long reading on, on kind of the justified and sanctified uh, uh, issue, but I thought that was important here because Paul is bringing it up when he talks about so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So next week, I guess we'll pick up with the remainder of this um, verse for 13, and I'm going to talk some on this idea of the kingdom and then beloved son. And then hopefully we'll move through the next chapter or the next uh, kind of sub-outline under the overture. It'll be the close of the overture. But it's called the Christ Hymn. It's really great. So we'll get into this Christ Hymn. Um, so with that, I think we'll... It's right at noon, so... Um, the Lord be with you.